thanks for coming out. This is a Reformed University Fellowship. We're a, uh, we're a Christian ministry uh, for New Mexico State and for the students at New Mexico State. So um, if you're curious about what we're doing, you can come talk to me or you can talk to somebody who um, was up here and we'd be happy to help you understand what we're doing and also have you join, uh, join with us. We do a lot of fun stuff, like Jessica said, um, but we also do this, which is a time to explore um, Christian faith and Christian spirituality. So um, yeah, thanks for being here tonight. Do me a favor, if you're not a roommate uh, with somebody, just make sure you're socially distanced from them, uh, a solid you know, five, six feet, uh, at least six feet, so that, uh, yeah, you can scoot backward. Um, we just want to be able to continue using this. We want to steward the, 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 the right that the school has given us together. So uh, thanks for doing that. Uh, yeah, so thank you for doing that. Um, it's great to see you tonight. How many of y'all have uh, started your quattros this week? Anybody? Yeah, that's what I love to see. So quattros are our small groups. Um, that are rotating small groups that we're doing. So um, it's a great way that basically we're trying to corona-proof RUF. So in case uh, it gets bad, we, uh, we can continue to do community together. Um, but it's also a good way to get to know each other. So uh, if you're interested in Quattros, um, come either, yeah, basically talk to me and uh, we'd be happy to get you and plugged into one of those. Um, so this semester, if you're uh, new tonight, we've been working our way through the Book of Romans, which is a tour de force of theology or study of God and how God relates to man. And uh, tonight, we're at one of the most important pivot points that Paul has for us in his book. And tonight, we're going to see how, as Paul the Apostle writing this letter to the Romans speaks to them and how he speaks to us tonight, Paul will show us that God saves unrighteous sinners as a free gift of His grace by faith alone. God saves unrighteous sinners as a free gift of His grace by faith alone. We're going to look at that in three ways. First, we're going to look at the unrighteousness of man. Second, the righteousness of God. And third, why it matters. Yes, and I was going to say that just now. If you have questions, it's good. Thank you, Riley. If you have questions while I'm talking tonight and you're like, this confused me or I need clarification, Shoot me a text. My phone, most of you should have my phone number. If you don't have my phone number, um, I think it's on your little bulletin. Uh, and so let me, uh, let me read our text for tonight and we'll look at it. So this is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. Uh, and this is God's word. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. There is none, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a free gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, re to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness in the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's God's word. Let me pray. Lord in heaven, thank you that we can be here tonight. Thank you that through all the things that are in our world, in our lives, the little things like sprinklers being on to big things like unrest in our country and pandemic, that we are still able to gather together in small ways at New Mexico State and sing about your goodness and sing about your presence in our life and study your word. We pray that as we are looking at this text tonight, these, these words from your servant Paul so long ago, that they would resound anew with new meanings to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, before I get started, let me get a shout out to Hayden and Micah for starting our lights, right? Yeah. They, uh, they came up with this on the fly. More lights are to come. Uh, so hopefully, if there's no sprinklers next week, we can sit in the grass and, uh, and have a really sweet bistro vibe. Um, so thanks, Hayden and Micah. All right, so first thing I want us to look at tonight is the unrighteousness of man. Unrighteousness of man. Look again at the first few verses that we read, where then he starts to describe, where Paul starts to describe human beings. He says, what then, in verse 9, are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, that is, all people, those who are traditionally close with God, the Jews, and those who aren't, are under sin. And then he goes into this long description and this long poetic description of what that means. And he starts to, he, he uses the Old Testament to describe the status of all human beings apart from God. In verse 10, he gives sort of this summary statement. Look at verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so that gets us to this word righteous. This is a really important word for the whole book of Romans, but especially for what we're looking at tonight. And that word righteous is super important. And basically what it means, righteous means spirit, spiritually accepted because of moral purity. Spiritually accepted because of moral purity. And so not to be righteous means that humans, that, that means that apart from God, natural men and women, apart from God, you and I, are not in good standing with God, that we're not in right standing with God. So think of it this way. Imagine that you got a random email from the, uh, the British crown. Joseph's already twitching in his, in his, uh, in his shoes over here. And the, and the crown calls you and the queen, and it's the queen of England. And she says, hey, I want you to come over to England and have tea. So be at, you know, next week, next Thursday, um, I want you to come over and, and, and have tea with me. It's a very formal event. Um, and so you're expected to dress for the occasion. And you show up, but somehow your luggage got lost. And the only thing you have is what you flew in. And you also ended up having a disastrous flight where you spores, spilled some spaghetti on your shirt and you mowed the lawn just before you got there. And so you're super sweaty. And so you show up and you look trashed. You look completely trashed. And you show up and, and you go to the palace guards and you say, hey, I'm here for my three o'clock tea with the queen. And they take one look at you and they say, no, you're not. No, you're not. You have no standing. You, have, you are not dressed to stand before the queen. 
That's what righteousness is. That's what it is to be righteous. But with regard to our spiritual clothing before God. It's our spiritual clothing before God in his formality, in his perfection. Paul says that apart from God doing something, you and I are, do, do not have the standing to before God. He says that no one is righteous. And in fact, he says that natural men and women, that you and I, apart from God, are under sin. That we're under sin. That sin controls us. That we are clothed in the disgusting, dirty clothes. And we can't take them off ourselves, Paul tells us. Sin, it, it controls us. It makes us unrighteous and it affects all of us. And in verse 14, he fills that out. Look at verse 14. He says, all, there is, he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. There is venom under their tongues. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And he's speaking of all human beings. He says, one of the major ways that we are unrighteous before God is how we use our language. How we use our speech. And I was reflecting on that today after swiping through Instagram and Twitter. And I was like, man. Yeah, Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. But how true is that still to how the human being and the human race comports itself today on the virtual realm, right? The language and the, the way we speak to one another. So much of my, I spend a ton of time on social media. I just basically flip through Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And, and, and constantly is a new somebody, Christian, non-Christian, using language in a way that dehumanizes other be human beings, alienates other human beings. How much of the content that do you look at is full of lies and character assassination and curses and bitterness? What an image he has here when he says, it's the venom of asps. The venom of asps is in, under their lips. The venom of asps is under their lips. This made me think a couple of months ago, Madeline went for a hike around a mountain. And she was hiking around, around a mountain. And she got to the backside. And she saw a giant rattlesnake perched right there on the mid perch. What am I saying? Sunbathing right there in the, midst, uh, in the middle of the trail. And, and, and she said, I was like, well, what did you do? She said, I turned around. I walked the other way. I wanted nothing to do with that snake. Well, why? We all just know it's a dangerous, poisonous snake. If, you, if it bites you, you're in trouble. It, it wreaks destruction with its bite. This tells us here that our language, our world's words, have that same poison which destroy lives. And that renders us unrighteous before God. Think about what happens, the, the speech that happens in our world today, our politicians, our news channels, Reddit, memes. Oh, memes are poison sometimes. So much of the content that we're watching and sometimes the content that we say, it devalues and it denigrates and it harms. It's dehumanizing speech and, it's, and Paul says it's unrighteous. It ruins our standing before God. He tells us more. Look what he says later on in verse 15. He says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here Paul is saying here that natural men pursue actions that are violent and destructive. That apart from God, your and my actions 
they, they lean towards or they incline towards destroying and harming other people. And I was thinking about, again, the news this week, and I thought, my goodness, how true has that been? Like, think of Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is with such a clear picture of natural man and his unrighteous worst, where on all sides of the political spectrum, we see violent police and violent white men just shooting people. Talk about blood and misery and ruin. But then we see also violent mobs at their worst, destroying businesses and destroying homes and destroying stores. Ruin in misery as they burn things down. That, that violent actions are unrighteous and they ruin our standing before God. Then in verse 19 and 20, he says, whatever the law says, whatever the law says, we are unrighteous before it. He's saying that God has given us a law, and that law, the Jewish audience would have known that law is to love God and love neighbor perfectly. To love God and love neighbor with all our soul, strength, body, and mind. And he says, no one can possibly do that. No one can possibly stand up to God and say, God, I have lived a righteous life in that I have loved and honored and respected you in everything that I have possibly done. And I have loved and valued and held as significant and dignified every single person that I have ever encountered. Paul says, no one can say that they've done that. Some of you may say, I'm not that bad, Jonathan. I don't curse anybody out. I definitely didn't shoot anyone this week. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're a little extreme here, Paul. And Paul would say here in verse 19, he says, no, you're, you're, you're misunderstanding the gravity, the high bar that the law of God sets for us. And he says, we are called, the law of God is nothing less than respect and honor of the God of the Bible constantly, our whole lives. And dignifying and charity and compassion towards human beings our whole lives. He says, no one can possibly meet that standard. One mistake, one selfish act, and we are unrighteous before God. And so here's Paul's logic. It's, it's watertight logic. He says, humans, we, we could be justified by doing what the law said, which is to perfectly love God and perfectly love neighbor. But he says, every human being, because we're under the power of sin, that, that, that no one person is capable of doing what the law requires, and therefore no one is righteous, that all are sinners. That every single human being, apart from God's goodness and mercy, stands justly condemned, helpless to the power of sin, and powerless to the wrath of God. That's the bad news, right? That's, that's where Paul builds this tsunami of a wave case that says, it's worse than you think. That's why I always say Christianity says that you're far worse than you can possibly imagine. But it doesn't leave us there, right? Christianity says that humanity is far worse than we can possibly imagine, but God's grace and his mercy are far greater than we could possibly conceive. And that's where this text moves on. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And that's our second point, the righteousness of God. First, we see the unrighteousness of man. Second, the righteousness of God. And look at verse 21, those two words, but now. I, I sort of tongue-in-cheek call this a holy but. It's amazing because this is, this is a, one of the few places in Scripture where there's this instantaneous shift, this 
clicks it on of something different, something good, something, something in the midst of this all bad news about what humanity has done to itself and the unrighteousness. He says, but now, but now, the righteousness of God. He said, an old pastor years and years ago says, there are no more, no two more wonderful words in the whole Bible than these. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And so in contrast with the unrighteousness of men, he says the righteousness of God has been revealed. It comes in, it sort of swoops in like the saving hero in the midst of the human race, which is just left boiling in its own unrighteousness. The righteousness of God invades down into our cesspool. It invades our lives, is made manifest. And it says the righteousness of God is apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God again through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, what is that? It's God's perfection coming and making us perfect. The righteousness of God is God's perfection coming and making us perfect. The righteousness of God is God's beauty coming to make us beautiful. The righteousness of God is God's light coming to invade our darkness. It's God's antidote to our poison. It's God's love burning away our unlove. It's God's righteousness. It's God's capacity to make what is unrighteous righteous. Well, how does this happen? How, how can God's righteousness invade into our brokenness and make this right? Well, he tells us later on in verse 22, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And right there he tells us, in, two, in English we, we would miss it, but in the Greek that word faith and believe are the same word. So you could translate this, he said, you could say, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who have faith. Right there he's got faith, Jesus, faith. That's how God's righteousness invades into our unrighteousness. Is it faith in Jesus? Paul tells us that God is the one who restores our standing and the instrument of that is nothing less than Jesus. He says we can't possibly make ourselves righteous. We cannot earn or prove or demonstrate our goodness that only God can do this. Well, how? Verse 25 and 26. He says, where is 24 and 25, he says, and our, he says for the, uh, where is it? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. There it is. By means of, or the, the means of it is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There it is again. He tells us here that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. What is that? Well, propitiation, it's a theological word that basically means a wrath deflector. A wrath deflector. You can think of it as God's wrath is zooming towards us in our brokenness, in our unrighteousness, and it's zooming towards us to destroy us. And Jesus comes in and says, no, I will take it. And it deflects God's wrath onto himself. When we deserve God's wrath and judgment, Jesus, who is perfectly righteous, stands in our way and absorbs the wrath. 
One of the best illustrations I've seen of this is from the play Les Miserables. Any of y'all seen the movie? Yeah, so good. And it, there's this moment at the very beginning where uh, Jean Valjean, who's the, the main character, he's just an escaped convict, and he's just been, uh, or he's just gotten out of prison, and, and, and he's now on, kind of on the run, kind of not on the run, and he ends up spending the night at the home of this priest. And the priest gives him this delicious meal, and while they're eating, Jean Valjean sees some candlesticks uh, that are made of solid silver, and he says, I'm going to take those, and I'm going to run away with them during the night. And so he takes these candlesticks and he runs away. And then the police end up catching him. And the police bring him back to the priest and they, and they say, did you steal these candlesticks? Did you steal these candlesticks? And he says, no, I didn't steal the candlesticks. The priest gave them to me, which of course is a lie. He did steal them. And the priest says, yeah, I gave them to him. I, 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 will t I, I gave him those candlesticks. I wanted him to have them. And actually, you forgot the bowls, the silver bowls that I gave you as well. Take those as well. What is happening here? Well, Jean Valjean, he's unrighteous. He stole. He's guilty before the law. He deserves wrath and punishment. But the priest, he says, no, I did give them. And in fact, he says, I will bear the cost of losing my silver so that you can be free. He says, I'll take the penalty of the lost silver. I'll take the penalty of having to figure out someplace else. I'll take the loss of the money. That's what Christ does for us. He bears the cost of our unrighteousness. He gets the wrath that we deserve so that we can be counted as righteous before God. And that's the moment, and that's what Paul tells us here. He says that moment happens at the cross, the propitiation by his blood. That that moment that Jesus Christ hangs on the cross and cries out and dies a painful death, he bears all of the wrath that we deserve so that we are counted righteous before God. And verse 25 tells us that this is only received to us by faith. There's nothing that we do to, be, to earn this status of righteousness. No, it's only us saying, God, I could never do this on my own. All I can do is trust in what Jesus has done for me. Some of you grew up in traditions that said you have to do something so that God will approve of you. You have to do something so that God will look at you and say, yes, you are accepted and valued in my life. That is not what Romans 3 says. That is not what the whole testimony of the Bible says. That says we are accepted by God by nothing that we do and only, exclusively only by what Jesus has done and our trusting in that. That is unlike anything else that this world offers. Every other religion in the world that I know of and studied says that you have to do something to get accepted and valued and loved by God or by other human beings. Christianity is the only religion that says you cannot do it. You're far worse than you could possibly imagine. And the God of the Bible has done everything for you to make you loved, cherished, valued, delightful, beautiful. This means that the moment that we trust in Jesus' blood as our righteousness, that moment God declares us righteous. And this beautiful switch happens where our 
our dirty clothes are placed on Christ and His perfection is placed on us. That is, he says that we are standing before him as spiritually clean, as loved, as valued, as cherished. And we call that justification in Christianity. You see that word in the text, that we are justified by faith. And that is God's legal declaration that we are righteous and loved and accepted forever and ever, and nothing that we do can change that. Okay, so we see the unrighteousness of man apart from God and woman. We see the righteousness of God revealed by faith in Christ. And finally, we see why does it matter? Why does this matter? Well, here's why. Because most of what we do in our lives is an attempt to get some statement of justification in our lives. Most, hear me say this, most of what you and I do in our daily lives is an attempt to get justification. All of us are desperately running around looking for something that will give us that signed, sealed, delivered, you are accepted, you are righteous statement. And we live in a world that, that many philosophers and theologians call a secular, a secular world, which means that we've sucked God out of our world, which means that the only place that we look for that statement of acceptance and value is something in this world. We look to our friends, we look to our social media, we look to our looks, we look to our athletics, we look to our jobs, we look to our grade, but we say God's way out there. He can't have anything to do with it. So if I'm going to be valuable, if I'm going to be a cherished, if I'm going to be a significant person, I have to do it, and I have to do it in this earth. And so we spend all of our time running around looking for something, anything in our lives that will say, you, Jonathan, are a significant person. Each of us concocts this personal little poisonous juice of cocktails of, of, of justification system that we measure ourselves by, and we look to that for our righteousness declaration. You don't want to know what that is, what part of that is for me? You're gonna laugh at this, but it's true. It's cycling. You all know I love to ride my bike, many of you do. Uh, and, and one of the things that I do, I shave my legs for cycling, which there's reasons for it. In actually in cycling, but you know what most of it is? Some of it is, I don't know how much of it is, I need a counselor. Some of it is, I want a cyclist, a good cyclist to look at me and say, oh wow, Jonathan shaves his legs, he must be a good cyclist. I want to hang out with him. It's as simple as that. Is I'm looking for some other person who I value to look at me and say, oh wow, Jonathan's a significant person. So I shave my legs. Now, there's other reasons for it, but that's part of it. Our our, here's another one. Our culture tells us to accept yourself. Just today, when I was on Instagram, I saw probably four or five stories that said something like, just accept yourself. Just, just learn to love yourself. Learn to love who you are all over. Just learn to accept yourself. Be true to yourself. And really what that is, it's, a, it's an attempt to say, you declare yourself righteous. You declare yourself. Learn to declare that you are accepted and righteous. Here's my bold statement. This is bold. You don't need your own acceptance. Because even if you could get it, it, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't really matter if you look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm significant, because you're just you. And it doesn't really matter. 
What you need is you need someone who is bigger and more weighty and more angry and more loving and more judging and more perfect and more accepting and more powerful than you who will look at you and accept you. It doesn't matter if you learn to accept yourself because it doesn't matter. But when someone, perhaps even God himself, gives you his acceptance as a free gift and all you do is trust in it, that is the kind of acceptance that can power you into a life of meaning and dignity and actually appreciating yourself. Your acceptance of yourself will never be enough. Something bigger has to do it. That's what justification in Jesus is. It's God's perfect acceptance of you. So I ask you, what's the thing in your own life where you look for acceptance? What's the thing in your life where you are saying, if this happens, then I will be righteous? Look at the thing you spend time on, the thing that you think about. Look at how you spend your week. For me, if there's something that I spend probably 25 hours or more a week doing, there's probably a piece of that where I'm looking for acceptance in it. A buried attempt to be justified. Paul tells us that nothing we can do can give us that acceptance, and that only happens by trusting in what Christ is. So for Christians, if you're here and you're Christian, we're all learning to, the, 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 to, to rest in the permanence of our justification. If you're a Christian here, hear me say this, that there's nothing that you can do that will dislodge God's acceptance of you. Nothing you can do will change your standing before God because remember, there's nothing you did to get in. It was just trusting in what Jesus did. It was just trusting in who Jesus is and what he has done. So if there's nothing you did to get in, there's nothing you can do to get out. There's nothing that you can do. And, and, and this is why it's important, because sometime this semester, I know this because I've been a pastor long enough to know that each and every one of you will do something where you say, how can God love me because I've done this? How can God love me because I looked at porn or I masturbated? How can God love me because I got drunk and made out with somebody? How can God love me because I cheated on a test? Justification in Jesus says that if you didn't get in by what you did, you can't get out by what you did. We simply trust in what God has done for us. So when that happens this semester, flee back to your justification in Christ by faith alone and say, I didn't get in by what I did, so I can't get out in it. There's huge peace to be had in our justification in Jesus. Rest in that peace. So what does this passage show us? It shows us first that apart from God, we are far more unrighteous than we can possibly imagine. But it also shows us that with God, we are far more loved than we can possibly imagine. And that's amazing news. No other religion in this world has news like that. It's life-changing, campus-changing, relationship-changing news. And if it's true, if it's true, it means that we can learn to not just accept ourselves, but rest in God's acceptance of us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks into our lives and our hearts and our situation even today. We pray that you would be with us as we go into our campus. Keep us safe. Keep our campus safe. Help us to be good stewards of what the university gives us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me turn off the live stream.
close off with the doxology. I'm going to do a Q&A first. After Jonathan does a thing. <laughs> All right. Oh, we didn't get any texts. Cool. Okay. Then we'll just close off with a doxology. So take it away, Regal. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thanks for coming out tonight. I hope you all have a great evening. We'll see you around. Have a good one. Thanks, Rigo. Yeah. Thanks for being flexy. Stick around. Oh, is it still live? Huh? Is it still live? It's, uh, let me get Test, 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 test. I can project. Test, test. Hey, stick around, hang out, talk to money. Please observe social distancing. Uh, six feet while you're talking to each other. If you're, uh, yeah, just six feet. Keep your mask on. Thanks for coming tonight, y'all.